0: I want to welcome you again to the Highlands. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here. Thrilled that you're with us this Sunday. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our teaching this morning. Lord Jesus, we recognize uh, that you are here among us. We claim uh, what you've said, or two or more are gathered. You are, and so you are here. And I pray against the enemy uh, and the schemes of the enemy. And I pray against, in Jesus' name, any enemy of Jesus Christ to be gone to leave us, and Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you and hear truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we started a new series called Spiritual Warfare, and um, maybe for some of you, you're not familiar with what that is, and if you're not and you didn't have a chance to be here last week, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the message, because it kind of set the course for... Um, the next number of weeks where we're going to be looking at this passage in the book of Ephesians where where Paul says, look, you are in a war. And really last week, that's what we we said, we are in a war. We are in a battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul's saying, look, you've got to recognize that your battle isn't just against flesh and blood. There's this unseen spiritual world where there is an enemy that is actively at work trying to disrupt our lives, lead us astray, And really to destroy all the things that God wants for his people and for the church. Dr. David Martin Lord-Jones, who's an older um, uh, pastor uh, in the UK, said this. The first first thing we have to realize is that the Christian life is a warfare. That we are strangers in an alien land, that we are in the enemy's territory. This is a warfare that you and I have to wage. You know Whether we like it or not, whether we're comfortable with it or not, this is a reality. That we are, this is not home, we are strangers in an alien land, and there is an enemy that is against us. And to follow Jesus really means, in one regard, to take up arms against the enemy. And this series is, we're trying to, to help all of us understand that battle and how do we take up the resource and arms that God has given us to fight this battle and be victorious. So two things I, I, I want to try to do today with the time that I have is, one, I want to look um, at the question, who is the devil? Who is our enemy? I had somebody ask me at the, at, at the end of the ser- service later in the day, uh, you know, maybe we should talk about the devil. Like, do we really have an understanding of what the Bible says about the devil? The fact is there's a lot of tradition and folklore around the devil, even the, the visuals that we have of, of, of the devil is sort of this red bean with the horns and tail. I mean, um, some of that stuff has, has come um, through tradition, folklore, but, but what does the Bible actually say about him? So I want to do that so that we understand our enemy and we must, in understanding our enemy, know his tactics and his strategies that he uses against us. And the second thing I want to do is I want to look at the first thing, the first sort of tool, uh, piece of armor, that Paul says, and that is the belt of truth. That we are called to put on first the belt of truth. It's interesting because a belt, um, kind of a, not really a piece of armor. Uh, it's, not, it's not like a weapon. It's not offensive. It's not defensive in nature. Uh, but what it is, is it is the thing that holds up everything else. It's fundamental to the soldier, the Roman soldier, in holding everything else up. I was doing a little bit of research in, in, uh, in you know, what was, what was key to our victory in World War II. And um, certainly, you know, soldier, having soldiers, having a lot of soldiers who are willing to get on the front lines, to fight, to battle, to, to give up and sacrifice in, through courage their life, their very lives. I mean... you have to have soldiers who are willing to fight and give up everything. And there's, you know, a number of other things. But as I was studying it, one thing historians have, have, have credited to our victory was the fact that the Americans were able to produce supplies and weapons at a faster pace than anybody else. That here in the United States, we were churning out more ammo, more weapons, uh, more tanks, more airplanes, more supplies than anybody else, along with our ability to have supply lines that got the resources to the soldiers so that they could fight and be victorious. That it was one of the key factors historically is is a fundamental, and that is that we were able to produce so much. Um, to allow our soldiers to be victorious. And the belt of truth is really a fundamental. You hear that sometimes in sports, that analogy, like we're losing, we gotta get back to the fundamentals. We're not doing the fundamentals right. That it's hard to be victorious, it's hard to win in sports if you don't know the fundamentals and you're not practicing the fundamentals. Truth is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's fundamental to, to spiritual warfare. The belt of truth is what holds everything up. In fact, the Roman soldier, they would wear robes. We don't really wear robes. Maybe you do at a hotel or, you know, in privacy, but we're not showing up to church or work or kids events in robes typically. But the Roman soldier would wear a robe under their armor. And the belt was vital because what, before a Roman soldier would enter the battle, they would lift up their robe and they would tuck it into uh, their belt so that they were ready, they were mobile. I mean, imagine if they're running into battle and they're trying to turn and they step on their robe, they're going to have all sorts of problems. And so the belt was important because it allowed the soldier to be ready, to be agile, to be able to move, to be able to fight and be victorious. And the word of God, it's got to be our foundation. It's got to be part of our fundamentals of our faith and the fundamentals of what it means to follow Christ. So, who who is the devil? He's public enemy number one, chief opponent of God and God's people, leader of an uncounted demonic forces that want nothing but disruption, death, and chaos in mankind's life. He is engaged in an all-out war against the forces of God, the forces of good in the universe. We've been looking, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against his schemes. James tells Christians that if they resist the devil, he'll flee from them. Peter tells believers to beware, he is always on the prowl like a lion. We have an enemy, and if we're going to stand against him, stand firm against him, we need to know who we're up However, there is a lot of sort of folklore, and so what does the Bible actually say about Satan? And while I can't cover everything, I want to cover a few important details of what the Bible tells us about Satan. First, Satan is his name. It was a name that was given to him, and the name means adversary. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word which means adversary or opponent, And when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, you actually see that Satan was used multiple times in the Old Testament, often referring to anyone who was blocking or challenging someone else. The the, the Hebrew Bible would call these figures Satan because they were acting as adversaries. So how did the devil get this name? Well, over the centuries between Malachi and and Jesus, Jewish writers began using this label as a name of the biggest adversary of them all. This divine being who rebelled against God in the heavenly realms and shows up in the Garden of Eden as a serpent tempting Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Theologian and author Dr. Michael Heiser says the dark figure of Genesis 3 was eventually thought of as the mother of all adversaries. And so the label Satan got stuck to him. He deserves it. It is his name. And it defines who he is and what he's, what he does. He is against us. He is against God. And he, his work is to try to trick us. So in fact, we are against God. And we live in a world that is against God. He is our adversary. The second thing is... Part of his origin story, while we have bits and pieces of his origin story, because I think that's always a question that comes up. Where'd he come from? Why you know why, why could he even exist? Um, what we do know for certain is that pride fueled the devil's origin story. you wouldn't uh, expect um, to find a, a text that gives us that insight. Um, in a letter about church leaders. Uh, but it, it, Paul does in the book of 1 Timothy. He's writing and he, he's talking about church leaders and the requirement for being a leader in the church. And in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he says, um, he gives a warning that any elder or any leader in the church, any pastor, must not be a recent convert. Or he or she may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. In other words, um, you know, it's unwise for someone who's just recently become a Christian to be put in a high position of authority because they might become prideful. Like, look at me. And in turn, fall under the judgment, according to Paul, of the devil. So we know that the devil, pride was a part of his origin story. And we know, we get clues that there was a rebellion against God in the heavenly realms that a spiritual being um, rebelled against God in pride and had a fall from grace, was cast out of heaven. Pride is the predominant theme. We have clues throughout the scriptures, and, and there's a number of them, but one of them I want to share is Isaiah tells a parable, and he's telling it against the king of Babylon, who's just an evil guy, prideful guy, And um, the prophet Isaiah, he compares um, the king of Babylon with this particular, uh, particular ambitious divine being who has fallen from heaven. That's right out of Isaiah 14, 12. And at one point, this character, this divine being who fell from heaven, the devil, says this to himself. So this is not God speaking, this is the devil. He says, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That is Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14. So in this, this, this parable that Isaiah is telling, comparing the king of Babylon to this divine being, we get insight into Satan, that he rebelled against God because he wanted to be God. He wanted to be like the Most High. But there can only be one of those, and that is Yahweh, the God of the Bible, our God. And so he was cast out of heaven, cursed. We see it right away, you know, like in Genesis 3, the serpent is cursed to the dirt of the world, to, to be on his belly, but he's been, what well, we know, he's been cursed out of heaven. And he, ha- he has nothing but death and destruction and pride and arrogance and evil front of mind. And what he wants, nothing more, is in his rebellion to God to turn as many people away from God and the truth of God and, what, and, and the truth of Christ And he's powerful, he is. The Bible talks about the fact that he rules the nations of the earth. The author of uh, 1 John says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. When Jesus is being tempted, at one point Satan uh, brings him and shows him all the kings of the world and their splendor and he says, all this I will give to you if you just bow down and worship me. And there's really no indication here that Satan's bluffing. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus calls him the prince of this world. And like, how did he get all this power? Sin. Like, once sin entered the world, it was the gateway to, to the devil. To begin to turn people from God. And as more and more people turned from God, the more and more powerful he became. Because sin became more and more powerful. It became more and more pervasive. And the farther that people got away from God, the evil and darker it got. The farther that people got away from God, the, far, the, the more that they wanted to turn people away from God. And so over time, it just gave him more and more power. And if we look, we can see that in many ways, the world is continually turning against God. And it is through the schemes Of the enemy and the sin of the world. And yet, let's not give him too much credit because he's limping. He's wounded, he's bleeding out, he's on the defensive. Even though from the time of the Garden of Eden until the time of Jesus, he was accumulating power, when Jesus comes, everything changes. Jesus resists his temptation. He lives a, a life that no human was po- could possibly live, sinless, and then he dies as an atoning sacrifice to defeat the power of death and sin. But what you see when Jesus comes is he comes and he's like he starts proclaiming the kingdom of God. Like the kingdom of God is now here. And he begins casting out demons because there is no place for for Satan and the and the and the devils to be in the kingdom of God. And he's proclaiming it and he's saying be gone. You, you can't be here. So we get glimpses really early on. When Jesus shows up on the scene, Satan's power is coming undone. Jesus is victorious. In fact, after his death and resurrection, he's reinstating Peter, who sinned against God, and he says to Peter, look, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Because of me, the gates of hell will not overcome the kingdom of God. It will not overcome the church. This is a powerful statement that Jesus is making about his victory, therefore our victory over the devil. And this really should help shape our view of Satan and spiritual warfare in general. Like we're not sort of holed up in this bunker afraid of the devil's and Satan, and all the power, and the the brokenness, and strife that we see in the world, waiting for some sort of heavenly air raid to come rescue us from this all too powerful fall, the fact of the matter is, we are winning. We've won. We have the power of God on our side. Heiser puts it this way, gates are defensive structures, not offensive weapons. The kingdom of God is the aggressor, I love this. It is the gates of hell that are under assault and they will not hold up against the church. Hell will one day be Satan's tomb. The apostle Paul, he's even more direct when he says in Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's done. He's just doing everything he can with the time that he has to bring as many down with him. And that means he wants to bring in as many non-believers into hell with him and he wants to spend uh, time making Christians, people he's already lost, making their lives as miserable as possible. But he knows he's wounded and defensive and on the defensive And the fact of the matter is, number five, Satan's power of death is broken. Listen to Hebrews. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in the humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Paul claims that death will be swallowed up in victory in 1 Corinthians 15. And in in Revelation Chapter one, Christ himself proclaims, I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Number six, and the next two are really tactics that he uses against us. And this is where we need, in knowing our enemy, we need to understand his strategies against us and how do we respond to them. Number six is this, Satan is a liar He is a pure liar. He is a liar by nature. Jesus um, says in John chapter eight, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him, none. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He He doesn't speak a speck of truth or half truth. It's all pure lies. He is a liar and the father of liars. He is cunning, he's a deceiver, he's an accuser. We have to recognize that Satan's uh, language, his native tongue is lies. And what he's interested in doing is getting the world, he's interested in getting us, mankind, however you want to say it, into believing lies that ultimately influence the way we live in the world. This is why he says, Paul says, you need to put on the belt of truth. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Because the lies, the arrows that he's flinging toward us are lies. And we must be held up by truth. Um, you know, I think we live now in a world where objective truth is sort of, we're being told there is no such thing. You're, you're, you're to question what is truth and really what, what culture is now telling us is whatever, however you define truth is truth. Like you get to pick and um, we're being influenced. Like the messaging that's coming from the world says this is truth And this is infiltrating all areas of of life, including the church itself. And we've got to sort of question, what ultimately is our bedrock? What is our firm foundation? Is it the messaging of the world and the culture, or is it God's word? And that's the thing, if you're going to put on the belt of truth, you've got to come to a a conclusion about the Bible. Do you believe it? Do you actually believe that it is God's word? Do you believe that it is truth? It is objective truth. Because if it's not, then you are then, then you are prone to being led astray. I, I, I stumbled apos, across this video um, on social media this last week, where this pastor gets up in front of these people, and they go and, and she goes. You may have noticed uh, in the the reading we just heard out of the book of 1 Corinthians that if you're familiar with the book that we we skipped a number of, of the passages that we read to you. If you notice that, I just want you to know we did that purposely because we just don't like what Paul said there. And it's like, that is just a sort of microcosm of now the world upon which we live where we, we sort of pick and choose what we like and don't like. Or the messaging of the culture has, is so pervasive and so strong that when we, when we reflect against the Bible, it makes us feel so uncomfortable and we're so afraid of hurting somebody with, uh, with what the Bible says that we don't stand up for it. We just go, it's easier, it's a less restrictive path to just go this way. Why do you think Jesus says narrow <laughs> is the gate that leads to life? Because it's a whole lot easier just to to go the less resistant way in the way of the world. And if you care more about, you know, people liking you and and being a part of the crowd and all those sorts of things, Jesus says, look, that's a wide gate that most, if a lot of people are going to walk through. And I believe the church is at a critical point in our history of where we've got to come to terms with the fact that the Bible is the objective truth and that we've got to stand up for it. And not be ashamed. And that's a choice that every single one of us has to make because the enemy is just at work sowing seeds of of half truths and lies and just at work trying to get us to believe things that are not true that ultimately affect the way in which we think and the way in which we live in this world. It's deception. And he's a deceiver. And that's why we have to be on guard. There's all this language of being ready. We've got to be ready for the deceit and the lies of the enemy. And look, the battle is happening up here in our minds, in in what we're thinking and how we're thinking and how we're responding to how we think. And so the enemy is actively at work trying to plant thoughts in our heads, that we make agreements with, that become beliefs and spiritual strongholds in our lives that affect the way in which we live in the world. This is why Paul says to the church in Corinth, look, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God or the truth of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So the tactic that the enemy uses is to trick us, to deceive us, to get us to believe lies. And the response by the Christian, Paul says here, is to take every thought captive and make it obedience to Christ. It means take that thought, take, take a hold of it, recognize it, and then pit it up against the word of God and the truth and go, is it true or is it a lie? And then you tell that, if it's a lie, you tell that lie away from me. It ain't true. Don't believe it. I ain't gonna go there. I'm not gonna make an agreement with that. And I'm not gonna let that become a stronghold in my life. So you've gotta be able to recognize lies. And that means you've got to come to the, 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 uh, a choice around what you believe about the Bible. And then you got to get in the Bible. And I'm not saying this in a sort of religious way. I'm saying, look, it is, it is, true. It is our truth. You're not going to be able to recognize the deception of the enemy if, you're, if you don't know the truth. What will you pit it against if, you're not, if you don't know the truth of God's word? How will you reflect? What will you reflect? The thoughts, the ideas, the messaging of the world, the messaging of culture, if 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 you don't have an understanding of God's word, what will you reflect all those things against? And so I don't say that as a sort of religious get-in, you know, get in order, but to say, look, soldiers in their preparation, they didn't show up to the battle without training, without prep being prepared. And the Bible, the truth, the belt of truth is a tool that God has given us. It is a fundamental tool. It holds everything else together that we've got to have. We've got to use. So here's a practice that, man, if, if we implemented this into our daily lives, it would have a profound impact on your life and a transformational impact in your life. And that is this, what, what if in taking every thought captive? I mean, that's a lot. It's not some thoughts. Paul didn't say take some thoughts. He's saying take every thought captive. Like, have a, have a filter in your mind. Like, is this true? Like, what is the lie that I might be believing here? And this, take, this is, this is going to take some intentionality. But you, you, you got to start filtering uh, what you're thinking and you got to go, what is, what's the lie that the enemy might be planting here? And then what is the truth? And then you go and you go, I reject the lie that. And I accept the truth that. This is a practice that my mentor taught me Many years ago, and I was like, Man, I've never heard this in church. And I was like, Man, what if, if I'm living this out? If I'm teaching my like, like the people I'm in relationship with to do this, like if I'm teaching my kids, do you know how do you know the like the enemy? He wants you, but man, he wants our kids maybe even more. If he can get the next generation and the lies that are being poured into our children's minds and ultimately shaping them. If we teach our kids how to think this way, it will dramatically change the way in which they live. But to go, okay, what is the lie that I'm believing? Let me give you an example. Let's say you just go, man, you know, I look around in the world and just everyone else has it better than me. Everyone else has it together. man. mean, everyone seems to have gifts that like, I just don't have. They're, everyone else is way more talented. Everyone else has things that must make them happen. I don't have any of it. Like I'm worthless. No one likes me. There's no way that God has planned for me. I'm a nobody. I'm worthless. My life is meaningless. If those thoughts enter your head and you you agree with it, you go, yeah, I agree. That's true. You're making an agreement, and in making an agreement, you're, you're, you're giving an invitation for a spiritual stronghold to take place in your life. Because then you're good, that's how you're going to live. You're going to live as if you're a failure. You're going to live as if you're nothing. You're going to live as if your life is meaningless and it has no purpose. But if you're able to recognize that that is a seed that the enemy is planting in your life, and it is not true. Why? Because listen to Ephesians 2. For we are God's handiwork, Other translations say we are God's masterpiece. We're his best. We're created in his image. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see, that is what's true of you. For every single one of you in this room, you're created in God's image. You are his masterpiece. And guess what? Before you even were born, he had a plan for your life you have a meaningful existence regardless of what the enemy is trying to say to you so what do you do if you recognize this what's it mean to take every thought captive what's it mean to put the belt of truth on what's it mean to fight you go i reject the lie i think i put a slide up here i reject the lie and i would what i was taught is you do it out loud so let me give you, I would, I'd be having conversations with my, my mentor, and he would just be listening to what I'm saying. He goes, Aaron, what's the lie? Where, where are the lies in this, what you're sharing with me? And we would pray, go, God, show me the lies. If you did this with your spouse this next week or with your kids, they're telling you, you go, I had a terrible day. This is going on, this is going on, and you just go, okay, man, what? Okay, let's ask God, are there lies you're believing? What are the lies? You just start to do this in your life with your family, your kids, man, it's gonna, dramati- in yourself, it's gonna dramatically change your life. You just go, here's the lies. And then we go, here's the lie. We pray that God would reveal the lies. And then we go, I reject. And we, I say it out loud. We pray it out loud because I, need, I wanna hear it. I need to hear myself say it, but I want the enemy to hear it. I go, I reject the lie that I am worthless and my life has no meaning. Why? Because the Bible says otherwise. And I accept the truth or I proclaim the truth That I am God's handiwork. That I am God's masterpiece. I was created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for me to do. That is what it practically looks like to fight with truth. And we have got to be on guard and be ready to do it every day. So constant monitoring of our thought life and to know the truth, to be in the word, to, to know what is truly true of us. Okay, seven, discord gives Satan an advantage. This is another tactic that he use. While Satan's power is broken, he's not powerless yet, and he's at work trying to take down as many people with him as possible. And what the Bible tells us is that things like un, um, unconfessed sin, um, unforgiveness, resentment, give Satan a tactical edge over us. It gives him a sort of right to bug us. So um, when, 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 you know, you're forgiven. But in James it says, you know, pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That we can be forgiven but still be deeply wounded. And there's something about confession and prayer and, uh, that, that we experience Healing. And, and so, look, we're all guilty of sin. And there's been times in my life where I've waited way too long to receive God's forgiveness. Because there's a part of me that goes, if I just sit in the ugliness of how I feel right now, then in some way I'll, I'm paying for it. But that's, like, that's a lie. God already paid for it. Jesus paid for it with his own blood. You don't have to wait, receive it. Right when you mess up, just receive it, regardless of how you feel. See, what the enemy wants to do is you mess up, you sin, you feel gross about it, and he wants to use that emotion against you to get you from stop receiving the forgiveness of Christ, the healing that he desires in our lives, so that Satan just kind of has this strategic edge over us. So we're called to confess. Don't wait, and it's hard, and it hurts, trust me. I've had to confess sin in my life that it, all I can say it was awful to have to admit it. And it, it, it's not easy, and it's not fun, but afterwards, there's something that overcomes you as a believer, and that is the healing of God but until we're willing to step out and participate and, and 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 do that satan has a tactical edge the same with unforgiveness if you're holding grudges against people if you're unwilling to forgive you give satan a tactical uh, advantage like uh, over you some of you in this room you you, you may have, you may have discord with people even in this church you're not speaking to one another you, have, you, you are not. You are unwilling to to forgive them. I just want to say, like you're giving the enemy a tactical edge in your life to just bug you, and 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 destroy you. And so, unforgiveness is just fertile ground for for the enemy. And so, we've got to repent daily, forgive daily, and accept daily God's grace. Okay, I'm almost done. Satan's defeat is certain and imminent. We see it all over. Revelation says, The devil who deceived them will be thrown into the lake of sulfur or fire, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is not a pleasing thought and truth for the enemy, but it is the truth. He knows it. And he knows his time's limited. He knows victory is ours. But he's actively at work trying to take down as many of us as he can. So, Satan is God's chief enemy, therefore he's our chief enemy. And yes, he's powerful, but he's not powerful enough. And we do not need to be afraid. We are on the offensive. Jesus is storming the gates of hell. He's inviting us to storm the gates of hell. And they will not stand. But we have got to be on guard, wrapping the belt of truth around us to 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 fight off the, the, the strategies, lies, and deception of the enemy. And it means taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ, digging into God's word so that we're ready and prepared so that we can proclaim who we truly are and we can say, no, I do not believe that. That is not true. I reject that lie and I accept the truth that I belong to God. So I'm going to invite the band out, and one of the things I want to do as we close our service is something I've, I don't think we've done before, but that is, um, I'm going to play a song that's been particularly uh, powerful in the last number of weeks. My wife shared it with me, and I've been blasting it on, uh, loud in my car, um, and, and uh, it's really an anthem. It's a proclamation of the truth of who we are. And so um, instead of asking the band to sing it and do it, which I know they could, um, we're going to just play the audio with the words on the screen. And I want the band to join us as a church, singing and proclaiming that. And just to receive that. And so we're going we're gonna to stand now. Go ahead and stand with us. We're going to play the audio. The words are going to be on the screen. And I just want to invite you to, 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 to claim this. Claim the words of of this this song, to shout it. Like this is is true of of who I am. And allow God just to maybe even in this moment bring deeply rooted lies that you've believed to bring them to the surface so that, that you can say, no, I reject it. I break that agreement, I break that spiritual stronghold and I accept the truth that I belong. I am God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to have a meaningful life that he prepared in advance before I was ever born. I am forgiven by the blood of Christ. I have everlasting life. I am a citizen of heaven. I've been adopted into God's family. These are the truths that we must hold tightly to. These are the truths that must shape us. So Jesus, thank you that you are the word. We look to you, God. Speak truth into our lives. Help us see truth. Help us to be in your word, not to be religious, but to know you. To be able to thwart the schemes and tactics of the enemy. And I pray, Spirit, that you would bring to mind, even now, maybe the spiritual strongholds, the lies and deception that we've believed, maybe for most of our lives. That maybe today we could finally let go. That we could receive the truth of what you say about us. Maybe there's some of us who have unrepented sin that we've been holding on that's been in the dark for far too long. We recognize the enemy has a stronghold over us. You give us the courage to tell someone, to pray with someone so we could be healed. Maybe we have division among us. Maybe there's unforgiveness among us. Would you give us the strength that even while we were sinners, you died for us? That we're not in deserve, we're, 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 we don't deserve your forgiveness. How many times have we turned our back against you, that you choose to forgive us over and over and over? Would we do likewise to our brothers?